Father, this morning, as we uh, spend some time reading from the scriptures, Lord, I pray that uh, this morning you would make them come alive to us. That as we read through it, uh, things pop out of the text that we've never seen before. And Lord, our hearts begin to understand something maybe we've never understood before. I pray, Lord, that you would help us in this time to understand you more. uh, To help us to fall in love with you more. And Lord, as a result of reading your word and and thinking about it, that we would leave here with a bigger view of who you are, with our faith built up and encouraged this morning. And Lord, would you just continue to illuminate our minds as we continue this series on your word? Would you help illuminate our minds to the unity of the Bible? And how it all fits together as your holy, infallible word to us. Help us to see that and trust that this morning. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So as many of you know, we've been in a sermon series all summer on the word of God. Studying the doctrine of the word of God and really asking what is the Bible? And how do we even read the Bible? And when you think about the Bible, the Bible is the recipient of a lot of praise. And the Bible is a recipient of a lot of critique. Uh, There are a lot of verses in the Bible that if you were to take them just alone and take them out of the context of the entire Bible, some of them just don't sound right. And a common way to attack the Bible is to grab some of these verses, disregard how they fit into the overall context of the Bible, and then use them as sound bites. So maybe uh, the person I, I see do this all the time is uh, Bill Maher, um, you know, the host of that pretty vulgar talk show on HBO. And he's a critic of all religions, but he targets Christianity a lot. And he said this in one of his shows. He said this. He says, explain to me about a book that is written by God who is perfect and is pro-slavery, pro-polygamy, it's homophobic, and God in the Old Testament is a psychotic mass murderer. I always say to my religious friends, if a pool had even one blank in it, would you jump in? Excuse the potty language. But this is what Bill Maher is doing, right? He is finding particular verses in the Bible that he feels are problematic, and he's isolating those verses of the Bible and not seeking to understand how they fit in the broader context, and then he's making rather ignorant claims about the Bible. If you were reading a novel and you grabbed one sentence in that novel and tried to explain the entire novel through that one sentence without understanding what the rest of the novel says, everyone would call you crazy, and everyone would call you intellectually lazy. But we do it with the Bible all the time, and there are significant consequences. Uh, Another critic of Christianity, Reza Aslan, he says this about the Bible. He said, the reason that the Bible matters and that it has been read for thousands of years is not because it is true or false. It's because it can mean whatever you want it to mean. 
In this country, not 250 years ago, both slave owners and abolitionists not only used the same Bible to argue their viewpoints, they used the exact same verses to argue their viewpoints. That is what scripture is about. It is about who reads it, not what it says. That's what he's saying. That's all the Bible is. It's a religious book that you can attach your agenda to. Just find some verses, assign your own meaning to them, and don't worry about how they fit into the book as a whole. Right? This is an example of the kind of lazy practices that many critics of the Bible have. But if we're honest, in the church and in Christian circles, we can have some of those same lazy practices in our Bible reading that has, quite frankly, brought on a lot of this criticism. Let me just give you two quick examples. Uh, Famous verse, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is an incredibly encouraging verse. I I preached on this passage, uh, I don't know, a few months ago. But what happens is people grab this verse, take it out of its context in the book of Jeremiah, and then say, hey, God is promising you prosperity in this life. It's a promise that you can take to the bank. But no, that's, that's not what this verse is saying. When you put it inside its narrative context, what we see is Jeremiah is writing a letter to the exiles that God had taken out of the promised land and put them over in Babylon. And he's writing them, and this is a promise that God gives to them. And the promise is, you're going to have this prosperity in God's kingdom. Not right now. What we see in Jeremiah 29 is that this is a promise of prosperity in the next life, not in this life. Uh, maybe another example, famous example, especially in our country right now, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, Vice President Mike Pence quoted this verse in his speech to to the uh, Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting, and he interpreted it as if this was a promise that God would heal America. It's a common way of interpreting this verse in American politics. It's a rally cry for people to return to God, and if we return to God, God's going to heal America. Now, it very well may be true if we have a revival in this country, God would bring lots of healing to America. God very much can and probably would do that, but 2 Chronicles 7.14 is not a promise of that. Actually, in 2 Chronicles 7.14, This is referring to the same people that Jeremiah 29 is referring to, those who are in exile in Babylon who got kicked out of the promised land. And what this is saying is if they return to God and they return to keeping the covenant with God with faithfulness, then God will restore them to their land, to the promised land. It really has nothing to do with America, and it can't be universally applied to any context or country. We need to zoom out and see the context and how this verse inserts itself into the rest of the Bible. And so 
here's what I want to do. As we continue in our series on the Word of God, I want to help us understand the Bible as a whole and how individual verses and passages fit in it. Uh, Two weeks ago, I I gave a pretty high-level introduction of the whole Bible. We went from Genesis all the way through the end of the Bible um, to give an introduction to this of what that grand story is in the Bible. And so if you missed that, I encourage you to go listen to it. It's on our website. But this morning, I want to continue to practice this of how do we read our Bible properly within its overall context. And so here's where I want to start. The law. Uh, What about the law? I mean, the first big chunk of your Bible is filled with about 613 laws that God gave to the nation of Israel. Uh, That's a big part of your Bible. So do those laws apply to us today? Uh, If they do, Okay, how do we go about that? If they don't, why is that? Uh, What laws do apply to us? What laws don't apply to us? There's some pretty weird laws in here. How do I go about thinking about these? I'll just give you a few. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 27. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. So guys, if you've taken your sideburns off and if you've shaved, you are in violation Leviticus 19, verse 27. Or about Leviticus 11, verses 20 to 23. If you are ever wondering what insects you are allowed to eat, all winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet, among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet, with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. Please do not eat those. Uh, My favorite one is this. I I have to do this. My apologies. It is in the Bible, so it's appropriate. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 11 to 12. When men fight with one another, and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, Then you shall cut off her hand, your eyes shall have no pity. It's in the Bible. These are weird laws. What do we do with these? I mean, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness. That's all scripture, including what we just read. So how are these profitable for us today? That's the big question. What I want to show you this morning is that since the Bible is a unified whole, where where nothing should be added and nothing should be taken away, we can use the Bible to interpret the Bible. All right, I want you to catch that. When we are confused about something that is in Scripture or we read something that seems off to us and we're not sure what to do with it, because the Scripture is a unified whole, we can use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Okay, so when we're trying to figure out what do we do with these laws, the Bible is going to tell us what to do with these laws. And so that's what I want to show you. So that's why we're going to be 
in Jeremiah chapter 31. So uh, let me give you a little historical context of Jeremiah 31. I already gave you a little bit. Um, Jeremiah was a prophet that God used to speak to the people of Judah, which was the southern kingdom at the time. And so what happened was God eventually brought judgment on Judah. Um, They were living in the promised land, but God expelled them over into Babylon. They were in exile. So these are the people that Jeremiah is writing to in Jeremiah chapter 29 uh, as well that we just referred to. And so God is uh, sending this message to these people who are in exile. They're under judgment. And what God is revealing to them here in Jeremiah 31 is that he is going to bring about a new way of relating with his people. All right, so I want you to see this. Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. Here's what it says. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so what we have in these first two verses is, what you're going to see is throughout all of Scripture, God compares his relationship to his people like a marriage. And a marriage is inaugurated through a covenant. And so God makes covenants with his people. And so here in Jeremiah 31, God is talking about an old covenant that he had with his people and a new covenant that he had with his people. In verse 32 here, God identifies the old covenant as the covenant that he makes with his people while they are at Mount Sinai after God rescued them from Egypt. So this is in the book of Exodus. And so after Israel escaped Egypt, they stopped at Mount Sinai. And what happens is God gives Israel the law, these laws that we were just reading. And the covenant was very simple. Follow these laws and you will be blessed. Disobey these laws and you will be cursed. And the people of Judah here in Jeremiah 31 were in the midst of being cursed because they had broken the law, as it says here in verse 31 and 32. And so God kicked them out of their land and they're in exile in Babylon. Okay? They broke the covenant. And God is saying to them, though, one day... I'm going to make a new covenant with you. We're going to do this differently. And what will that new covenant be like? Well, he tells us, if you keep going, starting in verse 33, God says this to these people. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So in these two verses, we learn two things about this new covenant. The first is in verse 33. We learn that the law is going to move from being an external reality to an internal reality. We'll get there in a second. 
And the second thing that we learn in verse 34 is that God is going to forgive each person of their sins individually. Uh, You have to remember in this passage, God is talking to a group of people who are all under the old covenant. So when he talks about the future in this new covenant where everyone's going to know God personally, what he's not saying is all of humanity will know him. He's saying everyone who is under the new covenant will know God personally, individually. God will have an individual relationship with each person in this new covenant. And this new covenant will include some way in which God will forgive everyone in that covenant of their sin. So just recap, the new covenant, it's going to move the law from external to internal, and God's going to forgive each individual of their sin. That sounds like a much better covenant. And we read about this new covenant in the New Testament, which expounds this for us. So I want you to see this. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Look at this. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So all the law does is show us that we are not righteous, and therefore we deserve the judgment of God. We deserve those curses from the law. The law cannot make us righteous. It cannot change our hearts. So the law shows us that we've got no shot at righteousness. But verse 21, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, right? So a new covenant is coming where we can have righteousness apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, so referring to Jeremiah 31 and other passages in the Old Testament that look forward to a new covenant, verse 22, here's the new covenant. The righteousness of God, not through a law, through faith in Jesus Christ, For all who believe, the new covenant will produce righteousness in us, not through a law, but through faith in Jesus, right? So the new covenant is about Jesus, not about a law, okay? And so what does Jesus say about this new covenant and the law and how that all fits together? Well, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to cancel the law. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's what I'm gonna do with the law. I'm not canceling it, I'm fulfilling it. And Paul will explain what that means in Romans 8. Okay, so follow me. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So God has accomplished something the law was not able to accomplish. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a human being, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Look at this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Jesus fulfills the law with his life. He accomplishes perfect righteousness. He follows the whole thing. Yet he condemns sin in the flesh by going to the cross. So Jesus takes our sinful life, pays for it on the cross with his own life. 
and he gives us his righteous life so that we can stand before God as if we have followed the whole law. Completely righteous. And so back to what we read in Romans 3.22, the new covenant, we get, what we get is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So anyone who has faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins has their sin forgiven by God, as promised in Jeremiah 31, and stands before God as one who has fulfilled the law, completely righteous. And so if you're here and you do not have faith in Jesus, please know that the way you get right with God is not by following a law. The only way to get right with God is by trusting in Jesus to do it for you. This is the new covenant. We no longer relate with God through a law. We relate with God in and through Jesus. All right, so Hebrews 9.15 will just make it crystal clear for us. It says, therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, eternal life, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So under the new covenant, we relate with the law differently now. See, Under the old covenant, our standing before God depended on our faithfulness. And our motivation to obey the law was rooted in fear. God says, if you obey, I bless. If you disobey, I curse. But now we're no longer under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. We're under grace, right? And so our salvation, our standing before God, it's no longer dependent on our faithfulness. It's now dependent on Jesus' faithfulness. He fulfills the law for us. And our motivation to obey God's word, it's no longer based in fear or punishment because we stand before God as righteous. There's there's nothing to fear because of what Christ has done. We obey God not because we're under the law, but because we want to. There's a big difference between obeying God because we have to and obeying God because we love him. I mean, parents, can you get an amen on that one? Remember what we learned in verse 33 in Jeremiah 31. In this new covenant, God's going to take the law and move it from being something external to being something internal. The law moves from being outside of us that we have to conform to, to being written upon our hearts. It's not an external force that we kind of have to bend our will to. No, it's a desire of the heart that transforms our will. It expresses itself in worship and obedience to God. When we come to faith in Christ, what we see in Scripture is God literally begins a transforming work in our heart. And this is where we begin to see how we apply these Old Testament laws to our lives today. 
just because it has been fulfilled by Jesus and we're no longer bound to it does not mean that it's not of value to us today. Because in the law, we see God's desire for his people. So earlier, we read from Leviticus 11. Uh, these are, you know, about the different insects that we're allowed to eat and not allowed to eat. Well, this is within a larger section in the law about the foods that we're allowed to eat and the foods that we shouldn't eat. Well, under the old covenant. These are the kosher food laws. That's where these come from. Now, why did God give his people strict food laws? Some say because of hygiene. Uh, it was cleaner. Maybe. Uh, some people say, well, it's a great diet. It's really good for you to eat in this particular way. Maybe. But one thing that God makes really clear about all of his laws in the Old Testament is that they were designed to make Israel distinct. They, they were designed to make Israel stand out as different from the rest of the world. Uh, they dressed differently. They ate differently. They cut their hair differently. They cared for their poor and the immigrants into their nation differently. They exercised justice differently than the other nations around them. God wanted his people to stick out in this world and be holy as God is holy, to be distinct. And so because of Jesus... We are no longer bound by the kosher food laws of Leviticus 11. But God still desires for his people to be distinct and holy. I want you to look at this. Mark chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. Look at what Jesus says to us. He says, don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and then it's eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Jesus is saying that the laws move from being external to being internal. It doesn't matter what foods you eat or how you cut your hair, or if you have tattoos or not, or if the exact way you defend your husband when he's in a fight. Right? What matters is the heart. Do you have a desire to live for God according to God's word? Because what makes us distinct from the world is not that we follow a bunch of rules. What makes us distinct is our love for God and our love for his word. Reluctant obedience is worldly. Joyful obedience is weird and godly. You know, in the church today, I think we have a major problem with talking about sin as if we're still under the old covenant. Give you some examples. I think of dating relationships, for example. In the church today, when we talk about romantic relationships outside of marriage, the conversation usually trends in the direction of what kinds of physical affection you can show and what kinds are off limits. I used to be a college pastor, I had these conversations a lot. What can I do? What can I not do? 
But this is old covenant thinking. This is creating an external law that we conform our behavior to. This is our heart desiring to get as close to the line of sin before we go over it. But under the new covenant, God doesn't want your behavior to conform to a law. He wants your heart. He wants you to say, God, I I love you first. How I go about this relationship, I want to show honors you above everything. So the way I'm going to handle my mind and my emotions and my body, I want it to do in a way that honors you 100%. I don't want to get as close to the line of sin that I can. I want to run as far away from sin that I can out of my love and affection for you, God. Because I know that that brings you worship and I know that that's where my joy is found. See, listen. The new covenant, oh, it's much more radical than the old covenant. Because we're not talking about uh, a law. We're talking about the heart. We're talking about our desires, not just conformity, not just behavior control, right? Having the mindset of what I can get away with, that's worldly. But having a heart that radically runs towards holiness and away from sin, oh, that's weird and godly. It's what distinguishes God's people in the world. Or what about money? Okay, God, what does the Bible say of how much I should be giving to the church? All right, 10%, there it is. Okay, God, you get 10, but I get 90, and we're good, right? But that's, that's old covenant thinking. Uh, God, where's the line so I can make sure I check that box, and then we're good, But under the new covenant, God doesn't want your behavior to conform to a law. He wants your heart. Where we say, God, I I love you more than money and all of the possessions and the kind of lifestyle that my money can afford me. You know what? I don't want to just give you 10% and I'll hoard 90 for myself and live the life that I want to live with the 90. Here's God, you have it all. I want to submit my entire life to you and whatever you say to do with my money, I'll do because I love you. That brings you worship and I know it will bring me joy. God, you have my heart. You have all of my finances, not just a part of it. I know when I live my life with the same kind of generosity that Jesus Christ has shown me that that is where my joy is found. And see, look, the new covenant, it's way more radical than the old covenant because we're talking about the heart, not a law. Having the mindset of keeping what is mine, that's worldly. Saying, God, you can have it all, that's weird and that's godly. It's what distinguishes God's people in this world. Last example, what about the tongue? Uh, Hey, what words can I say and what words can I not say? You know, what's a cuss word, what's not a cuss word? Is this gossiping, is this not gossiping? That's old covenant thinking. It's, it's It's not that we should watch our mouths, it's what we should take notice of that our mouths are saying is inside of our hearts. Jesus says in Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. See, the new covenant is way more radical than the old because we're not talking about the law, we're talking about the heart. What does your mouth say about what's in your heart? Ensuring that everything comes out of our mouth brings honor and worship to God, that's, that's godliness. 
Making sure our speech is always seasoned with the grace that we have been shown by Christ. That's godliness. The way we live today is much more radical compared to the law because we're under grace. And grace produces a heart that wants to obey God. So how do these weird Old Testament laws apply to us today? Well, when we allow the entire Bible to inform our answer, we see at least two things. Probably more, but here's two I'll give you. First is we see our need for a Savior in the law. Whether we conform to an external law or if the law is written on our heart, we realize that we are fallen human beings that cannot produce our own righteousness. We need Jesus to accomplish forgiveness for us and give us his righteousness. We need grace to live righteously. And the second thing that we see is we see God's desire for his people to be distinct in this world, to live differently, not to bring attention to themselves, but to bring attention and honor and glory and worship to God. Grace Hill, our call is to live radically distinct lives in our communities. Our call is not to blend in so we look like everybody else. We're called to live lives where we have surrendered all of ourselves to God, knowing that we are secure under his grace and knowing the world is going to say, y'all are crazy the way you live. God's grace frees us to live lives where we run deep into the direction of obedience, not try to flirt with the line of sin. And so let me just ask all of us, does that Describe your attitude towards sin and obedience to God. Do you, do you approach God more with an old covenant mindset or with a new covenant mindset? Has the grace of God given you a desire to live according to his word? But this morning, I also hope that I was able to show you how scripture interprets scripture and as we read the word of God, we need to see that it's, it's one unified whole that interprets itself. When we see scriptures that are odd or problematic or we don't know what to do with it, we need to set those scriptures within its overall redemptive context. And we need to see how every single verse and every single passage in this book points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, this morning, um, as we just really jumped into your scriptures in a lot of different places, reading from uh, all kinds of different points in the Old and New Testament, um, Lord, I pray that you would... Help us to understand and see that your scripture is a unified whole and that it unfolds on itself and it shows us the story of your redeeming grace. And Lord, I just pray that every single person in this room would place their trust in your redeeming grace, knowing that they can have right standing before you not because they have controlled their behavior enough, but because, Lord Jesus, you came, you lived faithfully, you died in our place, and you rose again, giving us new life. 
Lord, help us to trust in Christ for our righteousness. And Lord, help us to live according to the new heart that you have given us with the law written on it, wanting to run towards godliness. So because we know that, Lord, that gives you glory and it brings us joy. Lord, help us to believe that. We love you, Lord. We just pray that as we end our time right now, worshiping and praising you, that you would be glorified. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.